Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to this podcast, which is an abridged version of the television interview I did with Steve Coogan as part of my In Conversation series on the W Channel. Enjoy it. This podcast is brought to you by UKTV Play, the free on-demand service. My guest in conversation tonight is a multi-award winning performer and writer. He's even been nominated for an Oscar, but I think his best achievement is being the first comedy performer I ever paid to see. My guest tonight is Steve Coogan. Very happy to be here, John. Very happy to be here. Now, is it amongst your greatest accolades that you were the first gig I ever went to? Well, yeah, of course. I, I mean, mean, you know, when you're in Hollywood, do you ever drop that in? I do, yeah, when I'm talking to, you know, Richard Gere or, you know, someone even more successful like James Corden, I might, <laughs> I might drop in that you... Because, you know what, I, I'm saying that, and I know I've never mentioned it to you before, but I only realised that when, when we knew you were coming on the show and we were looking, I was just trying to remember when you kind of entered my consciousness. And I, it was the Davenport Theatre in mm. Stockport, the first gig I went to... That gig itself was significant for you. Was that the first one your mum and dad went to? It was. That was the first gig I did where I think my mum and dad were, saw a queue going around the block and she said, I can't believe all these people are here to see our Steve. She just thought it was just... I had this mad hobby where I thought I was funny and didn't realise people would actually pay money to come yeah, see but, me. But were you surprised? <clears throat> because it, I, well, I, I was think... a bit when they said people are queuing. Up. I mean, I don't, I'd been on telly a couple of times, but that was, I mean, like small appearances, and it, I didn't. I was, yeah. I thought, oh, I can maybe make a living at this. You know, the first time I got up, it was just a student review, and, and it was a, it was a student review, uh, uh, this law society review, and it was really all these law students have been trying to do comedy sketches, terrible, really unfunny. And um, one of my mates said, why don't you get up and do a few voices? I was like, I, I, I can't do that. And the, one of my mates just went up and introduced me and said, hey, this lad's going to get up and do some impersonations. And I got up and started doing, you know, um, really, like, not particularly sophisticated. I was doing, like, Zippy and Bungle from Rainbow. You know, and so I go, I'm talking, who's here talking like this? I'm speaking like this. And they go, Just doing stupid stuff like that. And then saying, shout anyone out and I'll do the impersonations. And the audience started laughing. And I got such a buzz when I came off the stage, I thought, I really want to do that again. That felt so good. And that's when I became sort of, it was like, a, I thought, I'm, I'm addicted to that. I want, you know, I want to have that feeling again of having an audience in the palm of your hand. So that was sort of what got me hooked, really, that accident. But you went to drama school then to act. The comedy side was never... Because, no, like, 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 you've said that you did mimicry and... Yeah, well, I, didn't like, know, I didn't know that I necessarily wanted to be a stand-up. And, in fact, I don't really do stand-up anymore, but I started no. out... I know that's... You see, some people, I think, are very good at it. They've got an easy manner. You've got a really easy manner and you sort of do... You're a, so when you're on stage, it's a version of you. It's sort of you yeah. plus some rehearsal and writing but yeah. that it's essentially a, 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 a version of you i could never really do that i did impersonations or, or character voices and um and that which is why eventually years later i sort of left stand-up behind I, although i still did like a lot of live comedy and five years ago i did a tour yeah. i did character comedy 
much more comfortable hiding behind a character than being myself. Harry Enfield did it a bit at the time when he did loads of money and, uh, and Stavros, that, the, the, that character. But there weren't many people doing character comedy. And I thought, well, I'll combine acting and stand-up comedy and do characters in front of a microphone. And that's how the show that you came to see yeah. came about. Well, like, Paul Calf was a great example of giving you that vehicle. Because Paul Calf, essentially, was basically a scruffy stand-up, wasn't he? Yeah, he was, really. I mean, Paul Calf is, is, is sort of a version of me when I'm drunk, really. Yeah. I nicked a wig from Granada TV and no-one was looking. Yeah, it was a um, proper wig as well. It was. It was a blonde, sort of feathery-cut wig. Yeah. And then uh, I splashed out on a moustache, a stick-on moustache, and uh, then nicked a jacket from my brother's wardrobe, and that's how that character was born. People went to see Paul Calf, almost yeah, not knowing there was a Steve Coogan behind it, I think. Yeah, that, well, he, he did have a bit of a, a following, you know. Uh, he had a bit of a cult following for quite a long time, before Alan Partridge came along. In fact, one of my greatest claims to fame was that when David Beckham had a... Because he used to change his haircut all the time, I don't know if you remember. He'd, yeah. Every other... Every month he'd have, Beckham, a different, yeah. he'd have a different haircut. When he was playing for United, he had a different haircut every month, you know. And one week he turned out with this blonde feather cut. And the crowd were singing, Are you Paul Calf in disguise? <laughs> Are you Paul Calf? Are you? And I thought, oh, God, I must be successful I mean, if the whole crowd's singing my name. But is there a point where you suddenly thought, yeah, I have, this is for real? My biggest break, really, was that I was uh, doing these little voiceovers on local radio ads for, uh, you know, Asda and the Yorkshire Bank and things like that. And then, uh, I, But I put this tape together, all my impersonations, and sent it off to... Central TV, because uh, there was an advert in the stage saying, new voice required for spitting image. And I sent the cassette off, and then I got a phone call when I was in the college canteen. Just in those days, four mobile phones, there was just one phone in the canteen. It would ring, and someone would pick the phone up and just shout the name of whoever the phone call was for, and they'd come just over... Just let that settle. There's people in here under 25 <laughs> thinking, my God, are they from the Dick Engine Times? It's Victorian, yeah. Know, but yeah. that was what it was like. Yeah. So you sent a tape off, and mm. the phone number you put on the tape was the canteen number. Yeah. yeah. That uh, says a lot about what you were doing with the rest of your time. Yeah, You'll yeah. find me in the canteen. Yeah, exactly. So and I remember I went over and they said, well, they want you as the new voice on Spitting Image. So I just put the phone down and went back to my mates and said, I've, I've got some work. And they were all, you know, well, you're all right. Then, well, what voices did you do on that? I did Neil Kinnock for a bit. I took out Chris Barry did Neil Kinnock, but then I'd had... Funny thing about Spitting Image, if you do an impersonation, you have to do the... You have to impersonate the other impersonator's impersonation, not the one you do. So I had to do Chris Barry's Neil Kinnock, which was, he used to speak like that, Royston Neil, Neil Kinnock, leader of the Labour Party, like that, speaking very old Welsh. But my Neil Kinnock was a lot more accurate and more specific <laughs> like that, and I wasn't allowed to do that one because it was very different. But I did him, I did... Uh, Oh, because they're all sort of gone. Kenneth Clark, uh, I did Ronnie Corbett, and I did, you know, the... Uh, I did the... <laughs> Good heavens, you know. The, by, and by the way, you know, I, I, I remember the day very clearly because it was the one day in the year when <laughs> when Allied carpets weren't having a sale. But like you've just slipped into the, doing that. Then I can't I can't get my head around how you can just. Latch well, on I, to it. I tried to do one of you the other day, you know, like because I think that the way you I talk, don't sound like you that do something. You, I think, I think that's that, what I that, sound like if I'm I, at the stroke. I think, I think, I think that I, I say about you that you managed to make a lot of material 
lasts a lot longer than it would <laughs> because of the way you talk. It's like me love making. <laughs> as long as they're laughing at the end. <laughs> But it, it is, it's, I think it's a real skill, but it's a skill that I've seen you say in the past you wanted to divorce yourself away from it because it was almost frowned upon. Well, it, to me, uh, although I could do it and I enjoyed doing it for a while, I think, well, it's not really what I want to do. Um, it's like a party trick. I prefer it as a party trick yeah. now, talking to you, than as a career. Uh, because, <laughs> yes, you know what I mean? Because yeah, I see what you It's mean. a bit sort of, not, I don't think it's a proper grown-up job. You know, when, when you do... The, the best kind of comedy is when you, you talk to an audience or you say something that's funny, and the best kind of laugh you get from an audience is when you say something that uh, has some sort of truth to it. And the audience laugh because you just said something about their lives yeah. or something that they recognise, and they go, oh, I, that, I, he's right about that. Oh, yeah, my life's like that. You make a connection with people. The impersonation, you don't really do that. They just look at it and it's impressive. But it, so it lacks a kind of connection. I wanted to do something that... Um, was about sort of humanity. You're one of six. One of six kids, and my um, parents fostered children as well. My parents were, I'd say, lower middle class or upper working class. My granddad, on my mother's side, worked under the Arndale Centre in Manchester uh, mm. on the bins. And my grandmother on my mother's side was a cleaner all life. Um, I mean, Dad's dad was a taxi driver, and uh, but I'd been worked in engineering. And, my and, and but my dad, you know, became an engineer. My dad was an engineer for IBM computers, you know. All oh, right. Nice. So he did very well, and and uh, and we had a nice house, and we had a you know two cars. Um, but my parents were aspirant, and when I say that, I don't mean like material aspirant. They wanted everyone to better themselves in terms of education. That was the important thing: was to educate yourself. I mean, my dad bought. I remember, my dad bought Encyclopedia Britannica. You know, for, for the family. When everyone else was getting a video recorder, right, we got Encyclopedia Britannica. When I came across that point that your parents fostered children, when they had six kids... Yeah. I mean, how big was your house? It was, it was a big old house. Um, half a house, you know, semi-detached house. And uh, we had... There was the five boys and my sister, who was the eldest. My mum and dad, my dad worked, mum looked after us kids. And then in the mid-70s, this decided... I mean, they were quite a Catholic upbringing. You know, we went to Mass every Sunday, dad did the reading. It wasn't uh, religiously repressive. I'm not, I'm not Catholic anymore, but I do, you know, I do respect their religion, in a way. What was the age span between the six of you? It basically won every couple of years. Like, so yeah. they had a break. Yeah. So, yeah, so they must have had sex once every two years. Yeah. So, <laughs> when these when these foster kids were coming in, yeah, I, I'm just they were short term fostering. Like, like so you would have been about what about ten? I was ten when the first couple of kids came along. Yeah. Does that uh, for a child in a busy house with loads of kids around anyway? How does that affect the child's view of the world when you've got somebody sharing your life? For it wasn't a very. Of it wasn't what I would call a very intimate environment. Yeah. In fact, I used to, at school, primary school, I used to run home at lunchtime. My brothers would stay and play football, and I was always a bit rubbish at football, and so I didn't develop the same interest as my brothers in it. So I would run home to spend lunch with my mum watching the news. So, and that was also to get some one-on-one -on -one time yeah. with my mother, because there were so many kids in the house. In fact, a, a policeman came out of the house once, because there was a, a car accident outside, and someone had seen it, and he wanted to get a witness statement. And when he came into the house, we had, like, all these kids running around, and we even had a pinball machine in the kitchen, uh, and people playing on the pinball machine, and he came on and said, is this a community centre? <laughs> said, no, it's not, it's our, ha it's our house. <laughs> it's where we live. 
do you feel then as a kid having a new family almost on a regular basis or new members of the family? Do you think that potentially allowed you to create characters from a young age? I think what's definitely true, looking back, is that because it was a very noisy household, what I'd do is I'd disappear into my own private world and my own imagination, you know. I was always accused of daydreaming all the time. Stephen's he's daydreaming, he's a real daydreamer. All he does is sit and stare out the window. But I was always thinking of things, thinking of sort of stories and narratives and characters and pretending to be people. And I had a very vivid imagination. You're not the only performer in your family, are you? Uh, no, I'm not. I, I mean, there's a certain kind of working-class Catholic thing that means that everyone... I, I think, not before my time, but I think, and this might be true of you, I don't know, is that if you're from a working-class background, there's the idea that a cheap form of entertainment is if someone else in the family can do a turn. Yeah. You know, can you do a turn? What does he do? What can you do? You've got to be able to do something, you know. It was a way of entertaining yourselves. And humour, as that's why there's a lot of working-class comics, is free. The route that you were taking was so alien to your family in terms of going into it show was, business yeah. full-time. Yeah. And you wanted to act, you went, wanted to go to a drama school, yeah. and then you went to comedy into the stand-up route and the characters and went to the Edinburgh Festival where you got your big break. Now, to me, at that time, Edinburgh Festival must have been a posh event. Oh, it was a posh event, totally. And the class thing you're talking about was really weighed down heavily on me because when I went to... Like I said, when I went to a drama school at first, I was a bit intimidated by very... what I thought were cosmopolitan people, very well-read, very wide terms of reference with a classical education, very at ease with words, if you like, and I, I wasn't, and uh, I felt slightly intimidated by them. But then when I got to drama school, I found that a lot of the people who were very eloquent and articulate weren't that good at yeah. doing it. You know, they could talk the talk, but they couldn't walk the walk, whereas I couldn't talk the talk, but I did, did know how to be entertaining in some sort of way. So my confidence grew then. And also I found that if you're from a lower middle-class background, my education, that I knew lots of working-class people and I knew lots of middle-class people. I knew a mixture of people, whereas a lot of the people who went to drama school came through this sort of, like, a, from more, a, a more rarefied background, didn't know many working-class people unless there was the plumber that came around to fix their yeah. sink. You know, that was the only contact they'd have with working-class people. So, so I felt like I had an advantage. So when I would go and uh, came down to London, I felt a little bit like a bit of a, a northern oik. Yeah. Right. You know, I did feel a bit like that, but... And Have you ever stopped I, I, feeling like a northern yeah, no, Do you know what? That's a very good point, because what I thought was, I, I, a bit of it was a little bit... Someone says, you've got a chip on your shoulder, so I've got a bag of chips on my shoulder, like, <laughs> yeah. in a tray with gravy. Right? <laughs> right? Um, because, because it was that thing of, like, I'll show them that I can do it as well as they can, um, because there was a little bit of... Slightly, I felt I was being patronised a bit when I came down to London by the people in the comedy scene, and I really wanted to try and prove that I had substance, if you like. This podcast is sponsored by UK TV Play, the free on-demand service, where you can watch the TV shows you love from Dave, Yesterday, Really and Drama, wherever you want, whenever you want. The home of BAFTA-nominated series Taskmaster and the critically acclaimed Red Dwarf, alongside other UK TV Play exclusive, including The White Princess and Most Haunted. UK TV Play offers free access to thousands of hours of comedy, drama, documentaries and paranormal TV, all for free. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. 
So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. You won the Perrier Award with John Thompson. That yeah. <clears throat> gave you a massive... It did, yeah. Massive lift in terms of credibility as much as anything. It did it? because I was... And I, but that was part of a plan because what happened to me was I got a bit lazy when I started out. I'd been out of college a couple of years and I asked Frank Skinner to support me on tour. I had this little tour. It was a mini tour of colleges and I did it on the back of Spitting Image. And they said, who do you want to support you? I said, there's this great comic in there. Birmingham, call Frank Skinner, I want him to support me. Well, that was a big mistake, because Frank was so good, right, he just blew me into the weeds. <laughs> and, and I thought, and I thought, hey, <clears throat> it, it, it was a fatal error, I was such a novice. That is true, though, what people don't realise. <laughs> when people go, oh, isn't it good he's, he's taking someone on to support him on tour, what you're saying is I want someone not as good as me. So, yes, someone who's quite good. I don't want them to not laugh, but I want them to laugh not quite as loudly as, as well, yeah. when I go on. Right? You have to be a comedy fluffer, <laughs> not a performer. <laughs> so we have to talk about Alan Partridge, who's been, a, mm. I suppose, a blessing and at times a, a millstone around your neck. Yeah, it has. I mean, the funny thing is, for ages I was like trying to say, I don't just do impersonations, I do characters. And then I ended up doing this character that became hugely successful. And then I'd go up past and go, I do impersonations as well, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like, like, uh, uh, and I end up with this character, and then I was like, I can do other things. I can, I can act as well as just do this character, but it was like, we just want that, you know. For you now, I mean, you know, you're, you're probably the age that it is. Well, I remember when I was younger thinking, all these characters I do, they're really a lot older than I am, and I, when I'm, I can't wait to be middle-aged, because then I'll fit the characters that I do, yeah. you know. And now I am, and now it's... I don't need... I used to have makeup for Alan, this latex, to give me lines around my eyes, and I don't need it now. Oh, that's um, good. That's exactly, saved yeah, on the budget. Saved on the budget, yeah. Um, and we, but he was all supposed to be 10 years older, but now we've sort of, like, keep reducing his age a bit, so I'm <laughs> eventually catching up with him, and I'll eventually <laughs> we'll just both be the same age. But, but, yeah, Alan was someone who would say inappropriate things that we all think sometimes, and that's part of the success, I think, is that people think, there but for the grace of God go I. I'm glad I, I think those things sometimes, but I don't say them because we have an internal editing mechanism that stops us saying offensive things, and Alan sort of doesn't really have that. And, but the other thing he does is does the emperor's clothes. Sometimes he'll say things that people think, oh, I'm glad he said that, even though it was by you know, mistake, um, because he's exposed some hypocrisy in someone else. So he's quite satisfying in that regard. What I like is, and I'm sure you know the fans of, of Alan Parts like as well, is that you... You've come back to him in a different way. Yeah, because 
uh, I, I, I managed to... Because I wanted to show that I could do other things, and I've started to do that now. <clears throat> the big thing that changed things for me properly was Philomena. When, yeah. I, when I wrote the film Philomena with Jeff Pope, and it was such a big success. And I was doing it because I wanted to do something different. And it's the first time in my life I stopped taking advice off people and I thought, I'm going to try and write something that means something to me. I want to do something that's sincere, something that isn't cynical, something that's about something important, but still put comedy in it. Yeah. And make it funny, but make it moving. Because it's like, the whole thing is like, well, you can make people laugh. Can you, can you, can you touch people and make them um, feel something emotional and, and authentic? For me, the, the story of, of how it happened and where you took it to, it's a film in itself because it's a dream story about what this industry should be about. You know, just remind well, everyone well, how I was, you I was, I was doing a film with Will Ferrell and uh, Mark Wahlberg called The Other Guys in, in New York. When you do a film with two big movie stars, you, you spend a lot of time sitting in your apartment waiting for, the, for them to tell you you needed on set. So I was twiddling my thumbs and I was looking through the paper and I found a story about Philomena Lee and Martin Sixsmith. And I read the story and I, I was in tears after I finished reading it. And I thought, this is a really moving story. So for, a... for those unfamiliar with the story, it's about the, the Catholic Church yeah. in Ireland taking babies away from well, unmarried mothers. Well, well there was the same, these laundries they <coughs> ran in Ireland where if you, if you got pregnant in the 40s and 50s and all through the 20th century, up, up until the early 70s, in fact, it was such a taboo to get mar pregnant outside marriage and these nuns would take these women in and what they'd do is they'd say, well, you, you have the baby here and then we'll sell the baby to rich Catholic Americans and they'll take the baby away because they want babies and you can work in the laundry and it'll be your upkeep and it was all done sort of in the cooperation of the government and but they were incarcerated, these girls. They couldn't leave. Basically imprisoned against the... They had no human rights. It was a complete violation of their rights but that was just the way it was. And it was, they were made to feel ashamed that, you know, you, 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 because they were sexually, you know, avaricious, they would have been portrayed as uh, being, you know, sluts because they'd just gotten pregnant. How important was Judy Dench in making that a reality? It was, I mean, I remember writing it with Jeff, and he said, who should we cast? And he mentioned a few names, and I said, let's get Judy Dench. He went, oh, do you think she'd do it? I said, but you've got to aim high, you know. Uh, so I got in touch with her agent and she said, I told her the story. And she said, oh, I'd, we'd only half written it. She said, go, go to her house and tell her. So I drove up to a cottage in, in a very nice cottage, a big cottage, in uh, Sussex. And um, told her the story. And she not opened the door. This and then, you know, M answered the door to me. <laughs> I was like, oh, wow. Did you so, mess her prior to that? Uh, no. No, I walked in there and uh, told her the story and she said, do you want to go for a pub lunch? And I went, yeah, OK. And she, she had a sports car, like convertible two-seater sports car, which I was quite surprised by. And she got in that and raced down to the local pub, me in the passenger seat, holding on for dear life. So, yeah. And um, I said, is this something you'd be interested in? And she said, I'd be very, I'm very interested. And I went, OK. And I went back to Jeff and said, we've got to make this good because she's, she's, you know... She's on the end of the line, wriggling a bit, but if we get it right, we'll be able to reel her in. You know? But it really... I mean, as a, as a film, I was lucky enough to be invited to the screen that you did for your family in Manchester. And as a film, in many respects, it questions everything that your family have put forward as far as the church providing an umbrella of love and caring. What comes across there is a vile institution, really. Well, 
you say that, but what was important to me was I thought, well, I do want to criticise it as an institution, but I don't want it to be something that castigates dignified people of simple faith, people who have a faith who act their values, not people who just talk it, people who act act their values and, and live their life according to the things they say they believe in. Yeah. Philomena, Philomena does have faith. Yeah. And she does live her values and she is dignified and she's the person... So when people would say this is anti-religion, <clears throat> I say it's not. You look at Philomena, she's got faith and she, despite what happened to her, she maintains her faith. So she counters the behaviour of those nuns and, and not all the nuns, of course, were bad, but we were talking about the bad ones and there was a good one. I mean, there's one good, nice nun to her when she's a young woman in the institution yeah. in the 1950s. So I said, this, there's one nice nun, four bad ones. You actually went to meet the Pope Afterwards, yeah, we were invited to screen for them in, in the Vatican. Uh, when I went there, the senior members of the the, the Pope's Pope's um, uh, sort of inner circle there sat down, and they said afterwards, "We're very comfortable with this film, and we this, the, the way this new Pope wants to do wants to do is to acknowledge mistakes in the past and not deny them or not resist them." And and uh, and because we, the film at the time in America was getting a lot of resistance from. Uh, certain uh, right-wing Christian organisations were saying this is anti-religion. It's a thinly disguised attack on our religion. And at the Vatican, they said this is the, this film. We're entirely comfortable with it. So I was able to go back to America and say to those people, "Well, you might not like the film, but you're out of step with your own boss." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now you've you've done that. No matter what anyone can say, you've got that that sense of credibility that I, I feel perhaps has allowed you now to revisit things like Partridge yeah. in a different no, I way. Like, well, I think it's, I like, I've just done a series, uh, Mid-Morning Matters. We did that big film, you know, the Alpha Papa film, where, uh, where it was that all, you know, got whiz-bang and all kinds of, you know, production values that you have when you go on location. But what's nice about that is you just sit in the room and you create, it's like little plays, like stage plays, and, and uh, you, create, you create the world, and it's all just about close-ups on people's faces and... It's nice. It's nice doing it, and it's because uh, I've had because I'm now you know I'm writing and producing films that I'm things that I'm passionate about. I like going back to do Alan as well. It's like having an old school friend uh, who yeah. you like to see. You know, you don't want to see him all the time, but you miss him and you you, you want to reconnect with him. So I think I'll always come back and do something with Alan at some point, as long as I've got these other things going on. The length of of your career is is meant that you've become famous and you've paid the price for fame. Yeah. You've paid, yeah. you know, with the intrusion, the tabloid stories, the mm -hmm. kiss and tell stories. Mm -hmm. That, did that ever make you question whether it was worth it? Uh, no, because, you know, I had a run in with the tabloids that lasted a few years when my own misbehaviour and uh, I sort of <laughs> completely copped to that and... Uh, uh, but I was sort of going through a very, you know, I was troubled. I was like, you know, doing drugs and drinking too much and, and uh, that's all behind me now. But I was a bit directionless. But do you think, and, you're saying you're doing drugs and drinking, but you're directionless. Is that just the world you're in? Because all of a sudden when you do reach a level of fame, and I know as you were saying, I came to this late, <clears throat> so I've come to it married and yeah, with kids yeah. and a sense of responsibility. Mm. If I'd have come to this in my early 20s, in my 20s, in my early 30s as a single yeah, man, yeah. I think when everything's thrown at you and you get the fame and the money and 
you know, I honestly can't say I wouldn't have been in the same position as you. Well, it was like almost in a way, I didn't really have an adolescent period where I went off the rails. I was too focused on my work. And then when I did arrive and I had achieved success, I thought, oh, well, now I forgot to do that irresponsible, have that irresponsible phase when I was a teenager. I'll do it now. Yeah. You know, and, uh, <laughs> but, but uh, having said that, the, the issue of press intrusion is something very, very different, which is, um, and I, I got involved in, you know, d dealing with making the press accountable for its actions when it behaves badly, when it bullies people. I do think I've got a right to privacy, and I think the press, you know, have a certain remit, which is to publish stories that are in the public interest. And if uh, someone, a politician, is running for office and says that part of his, uh, his appeal is that he's a man who has family values and he's having an affair, even though he's professing to be someone who's in all about family values and selling his personality in that way, then his personal life is legitimate yeah. to the press to in in investigate it because if it's at odds with what he's saying publicly, then that's clearly in the public interest. But that was never what I did. I didn't go around saying I'm the model of virtue. I just did comedy shows and did comedy writing. So ironically, because they turned me over, I've got no more skeletons in my closet. They've said it all. <laughs> so there's, uh, there's no dark, deep secret. I think, well, I hope they don't find out that about me, because they've already it found out. It was that cross-dressing weekend we were Oh, that was, that, yeah. that's right, yeah. <laughs> I must give you your tights back, yeah. <laughs> One thing we always ask people to do, though, on the show is to bring on a significant photograph. So can we get Steve's significant photograph? Um, so can you talk us through... That picture and what it means to you? Um, well, obviously, family is the most important thing, but in terms of my career and, and things that have, have, have a personal connection, that, I interviewed John Cleese just over a year ago in Bristol after his book came out, his autobiography, and I, I asked him questions about his life and, and everything in front of a big live audience, and we had this long conversation, almost as enjoyable as the one I'm having with you right now, John. <laughs> and I remember thinking, this is a guy who was sort of a hero of mine. I remember my fondest memories before video recorders where you, you, when a TV show went out, you had to watch it when it was broadcast or you weren't going to see it again for another two years. So sometimes it would be repeated only six months later. You think, oh, I've got to wait six months, I can see it. 40 Towers was one of those shows. The whole family would gather around. It's coming on now, it's coming on now. Dad running down the stairs from mending something in the attic. It's starting now, it's starting. You know, come down now, it's, it's coming on now. You're going to miss it. Oh, you're in the car. And I go, oh, bloody hell, I'm going to miss it. I'm going to miss it. It's it would all gather around, sat on the sofa, watch this show, and you knew that the whole nation was watching it at the same time. So you've got the feeling that not just you watching it, millions of other people are all watching it right now. So it felt like a more like a weirdly communal experience with like other people in the country all watching this show at the same time. So sitting with the family, watching that kind of show, very fond memories, and also I owe him a lot because, of course, when people didn't see a show in those days, because there were no video recorders, you had to rely on someone to tell you what was in the show, yeah. what was in it. And that was me. That was my job. I became like a sort of human video recorder because my mum yeah. would say, oh, did you see it last night? Oh, it was, oh, there was this funny bit. Oh, she couldn't describe it. She'd go, did you see it, Stephen? Oh, yes, I did. She'd go, you do it. You do what was on the show. So I'd just like parrot the voices of whatever it was I'd seen on a comedy show and say it was like this. So. That's how I learned a lot of my craft, really. I'm sort of glad that there were no video recorders because I probably wouldn't have been able to develop some yeah. of the sort of skills I have. And when I got to meet John Cleese, it was, it was like reconnecting with my childhood, sort of like something coming full circle. Yeah, I get it, I get it. And when you're talking about coming full circle, that's what this is for me, from being the first person I ever paid to go and see doing comedy 
to somebody sat opposite having, I think, what we'll all agree. It's been a brilliant conversation. Steve, oh, thank you. Cheers, mate. This podcast was brought to you by UK TV Play, the free on-demand service. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com.